when you step on the court, and this is where I don't think you know fans don't understand, it's a different level of intensity when you know when you practice, you have a high intensity, but game intensity is like high level to the point of it's so tough that you're playing against the best player in the world, so you're exerting so much energy. So I would have to have the next day off. Like I, I couldn't like practice. I was done. Like I never played well when it was a back-to-back game. That was former University of Kentucky point guard and NBA veteran Tony Delk, and this is the J Reels podcast. What's going on, everybody? Everything well? Living your best life? Hope you're all in good spirits and health upon listening to this. This is your host, Jay Reels, and of course, you're listening to the Jay Reels Podcast, your destination for all the latest and greatest that's going on in the wonderful world of sports. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. And for those who have been here more than once, welcome back. Thank you for taking the time, energy, effort, and interest in downloading this and any of my other previous podcasts so I can entertain, engage, but most importantly, inform you on what's happening in the world of the diamond, gridiron, hardwood, ice, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the j Rills podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. Today, my guest is Tony Delk of the 1996 NCAA champion Kentucky Wildcats, who went on to a 10-year career in the NBA. We'll touch on what it was like to play in Lexington, the experience of playing in the Final Four, winning a title, and being the most outstanding player in 1996. We'll discuss his lasting moments playing in the NBA, plus a couple of off-the-court endeavors that he's thriving in his post-NBA career. Later in the program, I'll share a few hot takes on the NHL and NBA postseason to date, including why the Celtics can dethrone LeBron James's march to another NBA Finals, plus the Mets, Yankees, and even sports gambling in New York City. But before we get to all that, first up, my conversation with Tony Delk. All right, Tony. So uh, just to keep the uh, listeners out there wondering what Tony Delk's been up to these days, uh, if you could please share uh, what's been happening uh, here in the life and times of 2018 with Tony Delk. Well, I've been doing uh, some some hits on NBA TV, which I really have enjoyed. It gives me a chance to talk about basketball at high level, and the playoffs have been really good. And um, just kind of breaking down my assessment of the game, but what it all boils down to is my opinion. And also just finished doing a basketball clinic over the weekend. Had about six kids here in Atlanta at the Galloway School. And when I do my clinic, it's more about uh, the fundamentals, uh, teaching them and giving them a good foundation. I have uh, two wines and will be a third one. Uh, Chardonnay, a Cabernet that's aged in Latin Bourbon Barrel for over a year. And wow. you can find that on CLDelpEnterprises.com, uh, IMAC uh, Regeneration Center. That's opening in about two months. So looking forward to having that grand opening. Then I have a few celebrity golf tournaments I want to play in, which I'm not nowhere near being a good golfer. But <laughs> it's for a good cause. So anyway, just staying busy. But uh, what really excites me and I love the most is basketball. Right. And interesting enough, because we'll get to uh, talking about the playoffs a little bit later on, but uh, was basketball your sport growing up? Was it uh... – Something that when you first started dribbling that basketball, you thought about, hey, I'm going to have an NBA career, or were you one of those guys that played multi-sports and then just fell into playing basketball? Well, you know, it was funny when I was when I ended my camp, I liked to speak to my kids and do a Q&A, but also tell them about, you know, the work ethic that I have going on. I forgot, almost forgot my book, Shooters, the story behind the double zero, mm-hmm. uh, is out and 
I'll have that. It should be sent it to, uh, to those people who pre-registered and they don't have a basketball clinic that I'm doing in my hometown, Brownsville, Tennessee, that I'm giving all the kids their free book. But as a kid growing up, it was more about, you know, playing a lot of different sports. I had older brothers that played basketball and kind of gravitated towards that because of, you know, I could play it all year round. And what I was telling my campers and even the parents, like every parent thinks their kid is good. I don't care what they do. Oh, he's good at this. He's great at this. Right. Uh, but they're in three or four different sports. So what I realized and figured out, if I'm going to be really good at something, I have to devote more time and basically all my time. So that's how I really started thinking about basketball. And I, I didn't think about a future playing collegially or NBA. I just love basketball. But what I started doing was I just gave up other sports. And basketball became my primary sport. And that's what I would tell the parents. The way your kid's going to get better, they have to do it every day. You can't just go from soccer to baseball to basketball. And I don't care if I am training your kid, I'm not a miracle worker. I can't make your kid a really good player if I'm only getting them three months, two times a week for about four hours. No, absolutely. And it's funny that you say that you uh, certainly stuck to basketball, but you didn't even think about going collegiate or even playing pro for that matter. So how did the, all the offers from the many universities come in? I'm sure that had to be overwhelming, to say the least, to think that, wow, now I have a shot to go play not only get an education, but also play in college. Uh, how was that whole experience like? Well, you know, it, it was a process to get to that level. And also what I was telling them about, you know, every kid wants to play AU. Every kid wants to be a starter. And I told them, I say, what really helped me out was having older brothers. They taught me and gave me the basic fundamentals of basketball that even as I play now, I still use because, you know, you're not going to be, you're not always going to be the fastest, the strongest. Uh, but they gave me a basketball IQ that I was able to still at this at this age of 44, I still can play with the younger guys because I know how to play the game the right way and I know exactly how to use the different angles. Uh, you know, a pump fake is still important. A jab step could get a guy to back up so I can get my shot because I'm not as quick as I, I once was. But you still respect what I do. Uh, and, and I think that. You know, as I improved and got better, you know, that's when I used AAU. I used AAU as a uh, – it was more for me, coming from a small town of Brownsville, Tennessee, mm-hmm. it was more for exposure. I, I, I was already good uh, fundamentally, but when it came time for exposure and playing at the best competition, I had to go play with an AAU team just to see if my game was good as I thought it was and if I was on that level of some of the top players. And – in my two years, I, you know, became a McDonald's All-American in that time. Right. And then, of course, Kentucky came calling. And I'm sure that uh, Kentucky, when you think of college basketball programs in this country, you think of Duke, North Carolina, Kentucky. I mean, those are the top three that come uh, off the top of your head. Uh, what was that experience like? And especially meeting, you know, Coach Patino for the first time. You know, what was it that stood out most about that whole recruiting process and choosing Kentucky over some of the other schools? Well, it was, it was so funny because being from Tennessee, I grew up a Memphis State, which is University of Memphis now, and, right. you know, it's funny that Penny is the head coach, head basketball coach for, uh, for the University of Memphis, and Penny was my host when I went to Memphis State, and, you know, we're just a, an exceptional an exceptional high school player. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those guys that, you know, barring injuries, reminded me of, like, a LeBron James, the way he facilitated and the way he got his guys, his teammates involved, and just had a love for the game. And, and all any teammate enjoyed and loved playing with Penny. 
So, you know, it was a tough decision, but I kind of wanted to leave home, kind of grow up and get out of Tennessee. And Billy Donovan, who was Coach Patino, one of the assistants there, he was the one that started recruiting me. And mm. at the time, I didn't know a lot about Kentucky history because, once again, it wasn't a school that I followed. I didn't care a lot about it because I'm from Tennessee. But Kentucky was never on my map until Billy Donovan started recruiting me. And then I started watching more games. And when they lost to Duke in that, that uh, Elite Eight game, uh, 92, when Crystal Lady did that shot, mm-hmm. then I really became a fan because of just the fan support and just how hard they played and the style of play, which really was something that I enjoy watching with them shooting threes and transition pressing. So I knew it would be a lot of opportunities for me to be in a great situation where I could score. And, um, and being coached by Coach Patino was, was uh, as I tell people, was probably definitely my top three uh, best coaches I ever played for because he taught me so much about the game, but the mental toughness, the preparation that was required, required, but also understanding how much work it's going to take to be at the next level. So he prepared us to be pros when we were only 18-year-old kids, just really finding our way in college basketball. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And then the thing is, on top of that, it's funny how you mentioned – that you looked at that uh, regional final game, Duke and Kentucky, and then the following year, which was your freshman year, and you went up against the Fab Five in the Final Four. And it's interesting how your college career bookends between uh, playing in the Final Four against Michigan and, of course, we'll get to the 96 uh, national title game. Uh, take us through some of those memories of playing in that Final Four and especially going up against the Fab Five in Michigan, which obviously they were the, the team back in uh, the early 90s that a lot of people gravitated to with the style, the swag, et cetera. Uh, what do you remember most yeah, they about were- that? Yeah, you know, they were the cream of the crop. You know, they were that, that freshman class that came in that really uh, was exciting because they were young guys, you know. And normally young guys got to wait two or three years or a year before they really uh, can put their imprint on the, on the collegiate game. But those guys were so talented that they beat veteran guys out. And then you start seeing them playing with so much confidence, like you said, swagger. Uh, they brought a different look. And then – you know, those guys could play. You know, I, I played with Chris Weber uh, when I was with Sacramento Kings, and, you know, you could understand why he was such a dominant player, you know, from a basketball IQ, the physical ability that he was possessed with. And uh, going back to my freshman year, I didn't play a lot. There were times where I missed a lot of games. I got some DNPs, and, um, you know, I had considered transferring early into my freshman season, and I stuck it out. You know, I think it was – you know, when you watch your peers play, it was frustrating because I knew I should have been out there playing and get playing time. But, you know, there was a, a, a senior that was ahead of me that was, you know, at that time better than I was. And, uh, you know, I had to learn from someone. And I was luckily, lucky, luckily that he was there and, you know, he was like, hey, hey young fellow, you need to do these things. So, you know, I had an older guy in my ear to kind of be a leader and kind of help me, kind of help bring me along, and then after that, you know, getting to the Final Four, it was an exciting time, and I was just happy to be on the team. You know, I had never gone that far, and, and now then I can start understanding how important it was to get back and get back to the Final Four and just to see how all the fan support, you know, how they traveled. They was with us with every, from SEC tournament to the Final Four, I was like, man, you know, just having that fan base that is by far one of the best in the country. Um, so, you know, Going sophomore, Sweet 16, Elite 8 junior. Uh, and then our goal was, you know, I had already been to the Final Four. I had already 
taken probably one of the, the, the highest steps you could take, but I'd never gotten to a championship game. And I, and I felt that 96-16 with everyone returning from 95 who had lost the Elite Eight game and adding Derek Anderson, mm-hmm. I knew we had a shot at being really, really good and uh, potentially winning a championship if everybody bought in and, you know, we did – we sacrificed offense for defense and everyone kind of knew how good we were. Oh, and we know that team, how loaded that was. Obviously, you being the senior on that team, we, of course, Antoine Walker, you know, Ron Mercer, Walter McCarty, you mentioned Derek Anderson. I mean, you had NBA talent you know, up and down that roster. And to think, you know, when you went up against the uh, UMass, of course, the uh, old nemesis back in the day between Patino and uh, John Calipari going up against uh, Marcus Camby and company and then John Wallace, uh, I'm sure that had to be you know, super sweet considering where you started in your college career and then to end up not only just winning the title but also the most outstanding player in the Final Four. What did that mean to you knowing that you had this whole process of being a freshman, like you said, not really playing that much to getting that uh, brass ring at the very end and being the most outstanding player? Well, the one thing I can think of, you know, because I also play as a fraternity, and uh, I, I would say perseverance. And for all of those kids that are listening – is that it's not how things start. It's how they finish, but it's, it's the work you put in. Like, I knew there was a lot more work I had to put in if I'm going to be a starter and if I'm going to be an NBA player because anything that's given to you can be taken away. So it was time for me to earn my position. And not only earn it, I was going to keep it. Like, no one was going to come in whether it was – it didn't matter the player. Is that this is my position. And what's so different about basketball – and, you know, you look at all other sports, soccer, uh, baseball, and football, is that you can kind of move guys around in certain positions. You know, I, I can have a quarterback that can be a receiver. You know, I can move these certain guys around in different positions. Even on the offensive and defensive line in football, in baseball, you can kind of move a couple guys around. But basketball, if you're a certain height, you're only going to be two positions. You're going to be a guard, point guard or a shooting guard. And you don't get the luxury of, of being a big man. So it starts eliminating competition in players and that's what I have to have to, have to tell my younger kids as, as they're listening and everyone thinks that they're going to make it to the NBA I said listen there's only a, a few thousand people who have played in the NBA mm-hmm. so it's so much harder than what you actually think and I say it requires thousands of hours of work and I have to realize that during different stages of my life you're going to be challenged but the middle toughness is you go back to the drawing board, you have to work a lot harder, and then you have to have the right people around you. So I kind of surrounded myself with really good people who at times where I struggled in the NBA, you know, they were still positive, and I still had to go put in the work. Well, absolutely. And to think that you are on seven different teams now, of course, we're getting uh, post-college career into the NBA, uh, drafted in 96 in that great class of 96, and just like you mentioned, the perseverance to play in the league for a decade as you did, but on seven different teams. And I'm sure that had to take its toll mentally, thinking that, you know, you can't stick with a certain program or you're either being traded. And what was that like as a player, you know, having to go through that, but at the same time, not dying on your talent, not dying on those dreams to have a longstanding NBA career? Well, you know, I I think also you got to, you know, I knew the one thing, the one gift that God blessed me with was that I could score. You know, I could score then. Uh, once I got to Kentucky, Coach Patino um, helped me become a much better defensive player. So I had two things always going for me. But I also had, at that time, I had a contract that was easy to move. Because I think the places I played 
wasn't like I was a bad teammate. I sacrificed for the team. I accepted my role. I knew I could have done a lot more and given more opportunities, but, you know, it didn't happen. But um, I, I wasn't I wasn't afraid of the moment. You know, I think that's where having played in the biggest game collegially and having had a you know pretty good high school, AAU career, is that here, even though I wasn't an opportunity, uh, but the process, and it takes time. And being traded, you know, yeah, I think the first trade I took personally because, you know, Charlotte drafted me, didn't give me time really to develop. It was like, oh, this is what we want you to be, and you're not this, this, this way, so now we're going to bring in David Wesley, and, you know, so that kind of went sour really fast. And played them, and they came out, so they got traded to go to state. I couldn't wait to play against them. Like, they didn't know the kind of competitiveness I had, and it was personal. I was like, you know, we're going to win this game, and, and we won, and I had you know, over 20 points. But it was just that uh, I would be so much better in today's game because I can shoot, uh, you know, free move, I can put the ball down. And coaches wasn't caught up in, oh, you're only six one, You have to be a point guard. Well, I wasn't a point guard. I was more of a combo guard that could score. Right. And the coaches that knew that, those were the coaches and the, and the, and the cities and team organizations I played with. I had the most success because they didn't just label me. I think during that time, coaches labeled you based on your height, not your game. And what we're seeing now, you, you might see two or three small, let's say, guys on the 6'4 on the court right now. The game has changed. It's such a skilled, skilled game. And I look at it now, I'm like, wow. I wish my mom had had me in 94 instead of 74. <laughs> right. Of course, because the way the league is now, yeah, just three-point shooting abound. Yeah. You would certainly thrive, and I'm sure you would salivate if you were 20 years younger to play on an NBA team today. Oh, man. You, you, listen, you hit the nail right on the head. <laughs> no, absolutely. Now, as far as uh, your NBA career is concerned, is there any one moment that sticks out or that you're most proud of uh, in your decade in the league? You know, I, I think just, you know, I look back at Phoenix, and it's, and it's not even me scoring the uh, the 53 points that I scored. Mm-hmm. It was playing in all 82 games. It was the first season, first team I played with that I played all 82 games, and I didn't get I didn't get hurt. I was like, man, you know, I, I was just happy to have gotten through a whole season, regular season, and also uh, get in the playoff and high state. And I didn't get hurt that year because a lot of a lot of my a lot of teams I was with, I had injuries like from ankles to quad. You know, something was always happening. And the eighty-two game season, unlike college, it beats your body up. You know, whether you're practicing, you're not practicing as much. But when you step on the court, and this is where I don't think you know fans don't understand, it's a different level of intensity when you know when you practice, you have a high intensity. But game intensity is like high level to the point of it's so tough that you're playing against the best player in the world, so you're exerting so much energy. Mm-hmm. So I would have to have the next day off. Like I, I couldn't, like practice, I was done. Like I never played well when it was a back-to-back game. And the reason why, because I exerted so much energy, like my body needed a whole, another day to recover. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and of course, how things are now with, with the different, you know, uh, different met, uh, medication, uh, different technologies that we have now, supplements that players can, can take, you know, those are things where, you know, like, like during that time, you know, you just let your body, like I let my body recover, you know, the best way it could. 
But you know, I think right now, uh, you know, the game is at a at a it's in a great place, and I just love watching it. But you know, you have to understand this. Is what I have to figure out too, like you have to know your body. That's one of the reasons why I look at LeBron and what he's done for so many years. Mm-hmm. You know, he's invested into his body, and during that time, my investment, what my best investment would have been, once the season ended, I needed to rest. But I never had another hobby, so I played ball all year. So eventually, you know, your legs and your muscles. Some will have to give. Right. Oh, absolutely. And not only that, too, just to think that you had that long career and just to be able to, you know, recover like the way you said and the nutrition and everything that a lot of players have and it's uh, advantageous to them. What was it like playing overseas? And you actually even won a championship when you played in Greece. So to, th- yeah. to think that now here you, <laughs> here you are, it's a different experience. You know, you've been a top yeah. guy on a college team and you played in the NBA for so long. What was it like being overseas, uh, playing in a different environment, language, Culture shock, et cetera, and then winning a title out in Greece. You know what's so funny? Like, and I've done hundreds of interviews, and no one ever asked me about my overseas experience. And wow. it, it's funny because, you know, it, it, it was different. You know, when you go from the NBA to going overseas, and you're right, the, the language barrier, um, the food, different culture, um, you know, it, it, was, it was different for me. It was, it was a lot more difficult than I thought because. I was so set in my ways, and I had a really good coach, uh, Coach Brodovich, which, which was really good. Um, you know, we just never really saw eye to eye, you know, and because he had in his mind that I was, he wanted me to be something, and I had in my mind what I could, what I could provide and bring to the table, and we never really clicked when it came to that. So I knew once I left Greece, I loved being there. It was amazing. People treated me extremely well. But I knew when I left, if this is how my career is going to end, this is where I want to be, I, I didn't want to play anymore because I knew the grind and, you know, the practicing, they only played 15, 20 minutes. There were games where I would play the first quarter, I wouldn't play the second, third quarter. I might not play the first half, I'm playing the second half. So it was kind of like he treated me as I was like a 19, 20-year-old kid, like, you know, playing mind games. I'm like, oh. listen, I'm, I'm past that. <laughs> you know, this not this not me being in college, so – I did when I left there, I knew I wasn't going back, especially playing for that team, but I knew if my career was going to end and I had to go through all, you know, through all that uh, for the game I love, you know, I'm smart enough to walk away. I felt like, you know, it, it, was, it was the right time. And, uh, you know, sometimes, like I said, coaches don't understand, even though they play, that you really have to get to know a player outside of him playing basketball. What do you like to do? Like, I need you to know who my family is. And, mm-hmm. That, none of that really mattered. It was about coaching. And the great coaches, and I look at Pat Riley, like, you know, he figured out, i got to make sure that the, these guys' number one priority will be their wife, girlfriend, and kid. And when I know you give me time and you care about that, you're always going to get 100% out of me, and, and I'm willing to give the, the or, uh, an organization everything. But even as I got traded, you know, I never felt like the organization – you know, really cared about, you know, what I did, my off the court, because, you know, if I got in trouble, of course, they would have been like, oh, we want to trade you, or, but I was a good guy. When you get good guys, you got to understand that those guys are willing to give you everything, but if I don't feel like you care about me, my family, it's going to be, it's, it's going to, I'm going to have the same feeling. Like, I'm smart enough to realize that you really don't care about what I do other than me performing for you. Hmm. And then not only that, because now you're talking, 
your playing days being over, and you even dabbled in coaching. So I can only imagine what that must have been like. You went back to your alma mater, of course, in, what was that, like uh, early, late 2009 or, you know, around 2009, 2010, and then yeah. to New Mexico State. So now here you are mentoring these young kids to get them ready, uh, you know, to right. play not only just professionally, some of them who are as talented to make it into the league. But uh, what was that experience like, and uh, would you even think about going back to coaching? Well, you know, when I when I stopped playing – and I ended up going over to uh, Puerto Rico, and I was kind of like a player coach. And mm-hmm. when I was there, the owner fired the coach, and the two of us ended up taking over the um, taking over the team. Uh, he was the head coach, and basically, you know, he allowed me to be a, a good assistant by, you know, giving them good defensive schemes, giving them good playing, you know, sets. And so I kind of fell into coaching by still being a player. and still had years left that I could have played. Uh, so it, it was still the, uh, that bug was still in my body to still go play. And I think once I got to Kentucky, I ended up having a, um, I think in 2008, I ruptured my patella, uh, patella tendon. And once that happened, I knew then I was like, you know, it's time for me to give up basketball and, mm-hmm. and go into another career or another profession. And, uh, and when Coach Cal came to Kentucky, uh, he brought myself in and, uh, you know, so I was just learning the ropes for, under him and, Thinking how he balanced and his family life and kid life, and then it's, it's a different, it's a different terminology too. So it's you know it's the playing, and then understanding the coach terminology and and those coaches are life. Those guys wear a lot of different hats. You're responsible for 18, 19 year old kids, and at, at that age, you never know what these kids are doing, what they're going to do, and uh, just trying to manage kids, but also trying to manage men in a program, and you know and. And every once in a while, you know, you have a kid that's going to be disgruntled. He's not happy. He's going to leave. You know, so it's trying to massage personalities, but also dealing with administrative stuff that you don't think about on the NBA level. So when I look at college coaches, you know, even uh, Marvin Menzies, who I had at New Mexico State, you know, it is responsibility. It is a tough job, and you have to neglect your own family. And I wasn't so certain that, you know, with my kids, I wanted to spend time with them. I, I, I devoted and given so much to basketball that, you know, I want to make sure that I'm available to be a dad. Right. So, that, obviously, coaching is not in your future then, <laughs> based on that. Uh, you, you know what? It would have to be the right situation. Uh, you know, I do a lot of uh, – the, the clinics have been really good. Like, I really have enjoyed doing the clinics because they had my leisure. I can do them here in Georgia. And I can really still, I'm still teaching the game, but I'm not devoted my, all my days and my time. To, I spent so much time uh, in basketball. Like my whole life is in basketball, you know, just from, like I was telling the kids, I might, I might play when I was at home growing up. I, might, I probably played about eight to nine hours a day, just yeah. going from somebody's house to another person's house to coming home shooting to I'm not tired, I'm going back out playing some more. And I would do that countless days, countless days during the month, and it adds up over time. And I, I don't think kids know how many hours it really takes to be good at something because even, as I was saying early, earlier, is that if you're playing all these different sports, how many superb athletes, you know, other than, you know, we look at there have been a couple crossover with Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders, and maybe a couple other guys, mm-hmm. that you can't excel at the highest level in two different sports. It's almost impossible to do. Oh, it is. I mean, it's uh, certainly a challenge to just do one sport, so imagine doing two. So, uh, yeah. 
couple more cookies for me, Tony, before I let you go. Uh, the game today, I know we touched on it a little bit before as far as if you would play today, you would certainly have you know eyes wide, being behind that three-point stripe and uh, just stroking from downtown. But uh, do you like the way the game is now, considering from the time that you played you know, back in the mid-'90s into the 2000s to today, uh, do you think the game has progressed, or is it two three-point relying and just not as, uh, not as physical and not as uh, dominating as it was back when you played? Well, I think we all have to look at the generation. It's like listening to music. You know, there, there, there's music that we listen to our parents don't like and didn't like and, right. and vice versa for, for my kids and listen to music that they, that they listen to. I'm like, ooh, that's, I, I don't like that music. Yeah. And it's generation. You know, generation change basketball, and I love where the game is at right now because it's required. It's not based on all your athleticism, like the high-jumping guy, the faster guy, the strongest guy. You have to have a skill set. And skill set, as I was explaining to my kids on Saturday, was that you have to be able to dribble, pass, shoot, and also be able to read situations. Like, you got to put kids in situations when they're younger to understand that's how you have a basketball IQ. I can't put you on the court and tell you a guy goes right and you allow him to go right ten times. Yeah. It's that you're not a student of the game. You know, you're just out here disrespecting the game, not, not following the coach's game plan, and that's what pissed me off. So, when I tell kids, you got to get a process information. So how, how, where the game is at right now, you know, you're, you're big, you're skilled, and we have to credit the Europeans for doing that to our game because they figure it's hard to beat the American when they have a power four and a center down low. We, we're not strong enough. They're more, uh, they're more athletic, and they're going to really dominate us. And we can't drive because now the lane is clogged up. So they figured, okay, we got to have our stretch forward to five that if these guys start making shots, the Americans are going to have to make an adjustment, bring those guys out. And they already they already had really good guards, you know. So they guards, even as we had elite guards, they had guards that could break down the defense. And then they finally had driving lanes. So big men, what they were used to doing, fours and five, they would just run back to the paint. So the European guys, they're fours and five would run to the three-point line. So they started shooting a lot of threes and making a lot of threes. So we eventually had to change how how we guarded them, but also we had to change our structure uh, from having players that were just big guys that just post on the low block. You better seldom see that now. And uh, so we have to create them the change in a lot of what we do at the highest level. Right. And uh, who was the one guy that you, uh, when a team came to town or you're on the road and you look at the schedule and you said, oh, geez, I got to go up against this guy? <laughs> was, was there a player – uh, that certainly gave you nightmares before, uh, you know, game time? Not necessarily. I think I respected everyone. Um, when you're a student, you know that certain guys are going to have the green light. Like, you know, playing against the Iris and the Kobe, uh, even I got a chance to uh, guard MJ, played against him. Mm-hmm. There's certain guys that are going to have a, a, a green light. And those guys are always going to be hard to stop. You know, only only people that can stop them is if they just have a bad shooting night. They're going to get to the foul line. They're going to make some shots. And it reminded me of how I played in high school was that, you know, averaging that many, averaging over 30-plus 30, 30 points a game is it was going to be hard to stop me because I can take any shot whenever I want to take that shot. And I was, you know, and my teammate's job was to get me the ball. So with that being said, those are always the hardest players to guard because they're going to be super aggressive. Every possession the ball is in their hand because they're getting paid for. 
And your favorite arena. What was uh, the one arena that you always loved to uh, play in? You know, I actually like playing, I know everyone will say Madison Square Garden. Right. I really enjoyed playing, there was something about going to Miami. Really? And I love the warm, like, warm weather cities. I love playing it, you know, from even being in Phoenix for, you know, a, a couple of years. But when I, I love Miami, sometimes playing in Orlando. But Miami is one, one of those cities where the fans wasn't, you know, fans support wasn't nowhere near because so many things are going on in, in Miami. But mm-hmm. just, being, just being where you have a beach, uh, you know, it's the, the, the sun is up. It's a great city to, to go out in, restaurants. I love being in Miami. And the thing is, you played in the old Miami Arena, and then obviously the new the American Airlines uh, Arena. So to think that even going back in the '90s, that you actually were one of the few players that played in that arena, because you know this day and age, the players don't even know about that arena. So to actually say that right. it definitely says a lot. And uh, you know, it says a lot about the city. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, I hear you because I'm a big man. Hey, listen, anytime I can get to go to Miami, any excuse to go down there, you know, it's just a two and a half hour flight here from New York. So I definitely feel you on that, Tony. Uh, right. All right, and lastly, uh, your book you talked about, uh, Shooter. Uh, what made you want to tell your story and feature in the book? Well, you know what? I, I really wanted to inspire and encourage kids to, to think big. It's not where you're from. Um, you always have to have a really great support staff around you, my community, uh, my family. I have really good friends. Uh, the sacrifice that, that's required in order to, to be good and to have a career, whether it's in basketball or any sport, any sport in the profession, is you have to spend as, uh, countless hours. But I, I just think just, you know, just persevering, but also just the, the dealing with adversity, like dealing with, with not having, a, my parents not having a car, you know, uh, not being able to go to certain events because, you know, I couldn't get there. Uh, but still, I stayed focused, you know, having – making basketball my first love and understanding that everything that you work for, you know, that everybody's not going to like, you know, even being in that small town and, and you think everybody wants to see somebody from a small town go and play at the highest level. Uh, it's not always like that. I mean, there's certain people that are jealous. There's certain people that, you know, I don't think he's as good as I was, he, you know, but I wanted to inspire and encourage them to, as I said, think big and believe in yourself. You know, and when you do something, you put it in the work, you know what you're doing. And my favorite song by Michael Jackson is Man in the Mirror. And I said, you might can lie to your parents, your teachers, your coaches. I said, but you can never lie to who you are as an individual. And you know, like I knew how much work I put into basketball. So regardless of somebody not liking me or saying I shouldn't have made it, you know, I know what I've done. I know my, with my high power behind me, pushing me and my family, uh, my friends, everyone Everyone, we, we all made it. It just wasn't myself. And just let people know, in order to be successful, it's going to take more than just one person. So it, it requires, and, and you need a team. So I have a team of people behind me. Oh, and that's an excellent message. I mean, that's a great way to put out a book and your life and to get that message out, especially to the youth, to make sure that, hey, as long as you continue to work hard, have that good team, and persevere, you'll go far in life, whether right. it's basketball, you know, business, whatever it may be. So that's that's excellent. And then uh, lastly, what attracted you to the wine business? You know, it's interesting. I look on your Twitter feed and I see the picture of Lorenzo's Reserve and I say to myself, wow, <laughs> he got into the, you know, into the wine business. How did that opportunity present itself? Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I was in New Mexico, uh, when I was out in New Mexico, 
uh, friend from California had mentioned to me, send me old proposal. I looked at it, and at the time I was so heavily involved with basketball that I was like, ah, you know, I don't know, any, I don't know a lot about wine. And uh, long story short, my girlfriend, we started researching. I had a friend, uh, Antoine Spielberg, who lives in um, lives in Lexington, Kentucky. He's kind of set us up with two different people. Went and met at a at, went to two different venues. And when I went to one, I really felt at home. I mean, the guy was like. I felt like he was going to really walk us through it and help us grow this business. And uh, with my Cabernet, you know, like I said, aged in Latin Burger Girl for a year. Mm. The Chardonnay is a crisp taste. doesn't have the oak buttery taste that most Chardonnays have. And uh, in about two or three weeks, I'm coming out with a Riesling, which would be my third wine. And uh, I just changed my label, changed my capsules. So I gave my wine bottle uh, a remake. And, uh, you know, and I've been talking to different, different people throughout the business, and uh, all of them give me some great insight and uh, just telling me, hey, just take your time, take your time. You know, it's going to grow, it's going to grow. And I've sold out twice, but for those who drink wine, uh, you can find it at tlduckenterprises.com. And, uh, you know, different people tweet me and family and friends that they really enjoy. It's a great taste. So uh, getting great reviews, and uh, hopefully we can keep building it. And I want it. At some point in time, I want to become a national wine, and right now I'm trying to get that, that uh, trying to get into different restaurants. But it, it takes time. But I like the growth of it. Uh, well, like you've said throughout this whole uh, interview, obviously your perseverance, dedication, and all that. I'd be sure that in the next, you know, in the months, and uh, hopefully sooner than that, you know, weeks to come, that uh, your wine will thrive and it'll be in those restaurants, and obviously it will be just as big as some of the other wines that are out there. That's for sure. Got to think big. That's it. Absolutely. <laughs> and it- and, and and it tastes good, so it's not like I'm putting out some garbage. No, it that, has a great taste. That's so, no, that's great, Tony. And uh, lastly, where can people, if they want to purchase the book or learn more about the Basketball Academy, especially down there in Atlanta, or I don't know if you're going to take it to other cities. Uh, if there's a website yeah. or anywhere uh, that we could find that well, information. Well, the Enterprises dot com is pretty much where all my clinics, the book, uh, and the wine. You can purchase that uh, from that site. TonyDelk.com, you can still find out what I'm doing as far as in the community. And most of the stuff I'm doing, I'm always giving back to charities, you know, from from teams, helping teams out, helping kids out. So it's not like I'm pocketing everything. I want to make sure that when people hear the message that the book that I'm, that I'm uh, that's coming out, that should be here tomorrow uh, with the pre-sale, that's just fine to send them back to the one, the people who request them. Uh, but even as I go back to my hometown, you know, doing a free basketball clinic with T-shirts, bags, uh, free book to all the kids, is that that's my my way of giving back and helping out the kids as as they become young uh, young teenagers, but also as they go into being um, you know adults. Is that someone helped them along the way, someone gave them encouragement, and someone saw something in them, and I want to be that person to reach out and as people give to my different charities, is that we're helping kids. Tony, that's terrific stuff, man. I greatly appreciate you spending, you know, a half hour or more with me to uh, discuss what's going on in the life of Tony Delk. I greatly appreciate it. And, of course, uh, for those that are out there, I'll have all the information on the show notes there. So please check the website uh, as my listeners will uh, uh, be directed there. Tony, thanks again. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, all the best to you with the wine, the book, Basketball Academy, etc. Greatly appreciate it. Okay, thank you. All right, guys, what do you think? 
Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tony Delk. All of his info regarding the wine, book, basketball stuff will be in the show notes, so please take a look at that. It'll be on the website, and of course, by subscribing to iTunes, you'll see it all there on the show notes at the bottom part of the page. So certainly take a look out for that, and please log in to uh, see what's the latest and greatest going on with Tony Delk. All right, a few things before we sign off. Start with the baseball, and then I'll get to the postseason stuff. Uh, Yankees just closed out a 7-2 and homestand. In the middle of that, they had won 17 of 18. First time that's happened since the 50s. I didn't think the Yankees were going to lose another game considering the way they've been coming back in these just wild and crazy games, whether it was the Cleveland game over the weekend where they were down 4 nothing in the eighth inning and end up winning that game in walk-off fashion. The way they beat the Red Sox in the first two games of that three-game set, although they did lose the final game on Thursday, Yankees did not miss a beat as they won two out of three against the Oakland A's. Now they go on a trip to Washington for two games where they face Max Scherzer on Wednesday, which will be fascinating. He'll oppose CeCe Sabathia in that matchup. And then they go to Casey and Texas before coming home Memorial Day weekend to play the Angels. So they're going to fatten up on the dregs of the American League Central and uh, also the American League West, for that matter. I'm sure they'll fatten up on that pitching. But first, uh, two tough games down in the nation's capital where the Nationals have played a lot better. They went off, got off to a slow start themselves, but they have righted the ship, and they're in the mix of the NL East, which we'll get to in a couple moments with our, uh, of course, sagging state of the New York Mets. But Yankees, what can you say? Playing well. They have four guys who have hit 10 home runs in the first 40 games. Gary Sanchez, Giancarlo Stanton, Didi Gregorius, and Aaron Judge. First time that's happened in the history of the Yankee franchise. It's amazing to think that in their entire history, they haven't had four guys hit 10 home runs in the first 40 games. Well, it's happened now. Last time that actually happened in the American League was the 3 Rangers. So it had been, what, 15 years since uh, any team has done that, let alone American or National. So the Yankees that hang their hat on that. The uh, Actually, it hasn't even happened in the first 50 games, for that matter, in Yankee history. So that's certainly a feat that... Uh, it's historic in that regard. And uh, the Yankees, top of the charts there in the AL East, although they share that with the Boston Red Sox, both at 28-12 and 12 here in the first uh, quarter of the season. And as I said, with this uh, road trip coming up for the Bombers, I'm sure they will continue to pad not only their offensive stats, but pad their record after going to the nation's capital, a trip to Kansas City, and then to Texas before coming home to face the Angels there on Memorial Day weekend. And then the Astros right after that. So kind of like you saw late last month, early this month, where the Yankees went out to Anaheim and then went to Houston for four games. Well, this time it's uh, three at home over the weekend, and then the uh, Astros follow up with three starting on Memorial Day Monday uh, to pretty much close out the month. The Yankees do go to Baltimore at the end, which starting on the 31st. But uh, first things first, the Yankees head down to the nation's capital to start off this eight-game road trip. As for the Mets, they stagger home after a 2-3 and three road trip, losing uh, two of those games in Cincinnati, the, the worst team in the National League by far. And remember how they were one and a half games back? I had that rant last week where between the organization, Matt Harvey, the progression of some of the players on the team, and to think after everything that I've said, they were just a game and a half back. Well, here we are seven days later, as I'm recording this on Monday, May 14th, and they're actually four games back of Atlanta, who are uh, at the top of the NL East, 
Three in the loss, which that's the most important thing, is the games in the loss column. But four back. And even though the sky seems to be falling and flushing, they are uh, still hanging in there, despite the fact that they only played two games over the weekend in Philadelphia. They had a washout there on Saturday. Friday night, they had to have some ninth-inning heroics with Michael Conforto and Devin Mesoraco, who made his splash uh, in a Met uniform, hitting that home run in the ninth inning to propel the Mets to a victory. And funny enough, that same night, Matt Harvey pitched, which I'll get into in a minute. So as for right this second, it seemed like the trade has certainly paid dividends for both teams. But the Mets uh, could not uh, pull off a, another victory yesterday uh, down in Philadelphia as uh, they fall to the Phillies, who are, of course, ahead of them in the standings. And now the Mets come home for eight games where the front end is not going to be easy. Now they have a day off today and also a day off Thursday with their first interleague matchup against the Toronto Blue Jays. They play them later on. In fact, I think it's July 3rd and 4th. Uh, so they'll be up in Canada for the uh, Independence Day uh, during the middle of the week. But the Mets here face these two games against Toronto, followed by a day off on Thursday, and then host Arizona, which they're often flying in the National League West. And then they play Miami to close out the homestand Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week. And as far as the Mets are concerned, you only have to hope, excuse me, hope and pray and keep your fingers crossed that they just win series. As much as you would like for them to go on a winning streak, although you don't foresee that, but right now you just want to win games and win series. And that's what you're looking at. Now, I understand it's not pretty. It's not sexy. You know you want to roll off. It's pretty to roll off the nine in a row that they did early in April. But we do not forecast that at any point with this team, the way they've been playing. And obviously with guys that have been on the shelf. You know, yesterday, even Jacob DeGrom, who had that uh, start, first start after being put on the shelf there with the hyperextended elbow or a hyperextension of his elbow in that at-bat against the Braves the week prior. He went through a 45-pitch first inning where Mickey Calloway pulled him. I thought it was smart. It was a cold, damp day down in Philadelphia. You certainly don't want to extend them any more than you have to. Uh, I get that it's a game that the Mets, you know, Mets need wins, and they need to start getting on a roll. But you certainly cannot put the risk of your best starter just for the sake of it, especially 45 pitches in the first inning. I totally understand where Mickey Calloway is coming from, so you can't kill him for that. I understand it's, bluntly, it sucks, but what are you going to do? Do you want to have Jacob DeGrom for the whole season, or do you want him to gut out five innings? Chances are the Mets end up losing, and then Jacob DeGrom is on the shelf for six weeks to two months. You certainly don't want that, and you don't want that in your number one starter in Jacob DeGrom. You only hope that the Mets, like I said, you know Toronto's been a good team so far in this early going they're in third place in the American League East. Follow that up by Arizona, which those are going to be the tough five games. Who knows? That could be 0-5 written all over it. And remember, the Mets just came off an 0-6 homestand. So hopefully they could squash that uh, streak of uh, consecutive games losing at home. And again, if you're the Mets, you just want to tread water here. As bad as that may sound, and again, it's not sexy to just say, hey, win games or you know, just to win series. Now, you have a two-game series, so it would be nice to win these first two. But if you split them, you split them. I mean, what are you going to do? But Arizona, this weekend's not going to be easy. Miami, as we know, they played a match pretty tough, despite the fact that the Mets swept them down in Miami earlier this year. And then after that, to look ahead, the Mets go to Milwaukee. 
which they've been playing pretty well. Then they have Atlanta before coming home to play the Cubs. Two games against Baltimore and then the Yankees in their first showdown of 2018. So the schedule does not look favorable for the Mets in the days and weeks to come. This is going to be a trying time, as it already is, for this Met team as it is in 2018. We'll see how this week plays out. Who knows? I'll probably come on the airwaves next month, or next Monday, I should say, and uh, rail how the Mets have now are seven games back. Now, I don't know who Atlanta, Philly, and Washington are playing. Well, of course, we know Washington's playing the Yankees, but I don't know what their competition is going to be like over the course of the next seven days. But as long as the Mets somehow, some way, and as crazy as it sounds, if you could go three and two over the next five, you got to take it. You have to. Now, granted, you'd want to get those three wins you know, early on. It would be nice to get two over Toronto and then maybe just get one of the three over the weekend. You certainly don't want to split here and then have to get two out of three against a surging Arizona uh, Diamondback team. But if you're a Met fan, all you're doing is just hoping for wins any way, shape, form possible. Kind of like what happened Friday night. You know, they're down in the game one nothing, and then obviously going into the ninth inning, they pulled a rabbit out of their hat. And you only hope that that would propel them into a little bit of a winning streak. But after the rain out Saturday and then losing yesterday, it's back to the drawing board. And with a day off today, followed that up by a day off on Thursday, they'll have enough time to get their bullpen rested, some players that are nicked up to hopefully come back into the lineup soon. And uh, you just pretty much take it from there. That's all all there is to it with the Mets. And as far as Matt Harvey, I'm not going to get crazy over his start in L.A. on Friday. I know some Mets fans are like, oh boy, this is expected. Oh, this is typical. Four innings he pitched. I think he threw 55 pitches. He gave up one hit, struck out two, didn't walk anybody. Which that, to me, that was a surprise. He didn't walk anybody because all he's done is just walk batters. His whip has been out of control. Not just this year, but pretty much the last two plus years after that World Series uh, performance in Game 5 in uh, 2015. But I'm not going to get all wrapped up in that. You know, let him get a few other starts under his belt. And I'm not trying to wish this guy ill will or say, aha, you know, he doesn't have it. You know, the whole change of scenery thing, I understand that could be overblown, maybe even a little overrated. But you know what? You look at what he's gone through and what's happening here, and I'm certainly not going to be an apologist for him. But let's see how he performs. It's just one game. That's like saying Devin Mesoraco hitting that home run the other night. Oh, hey, he's going to come back into that uh, 2015 form where he was an all-star and hit 25 home runs. Uh, You know, let's calm down. Let's see how he is after his more or less his third, fourth, and fifth starts. And mind you, he played a Nelly Dodger team, which right now, talk about treading water. I mean, they're taking in water considering they just got swept by the Reds. And when the Mets visited them last week, they had eight wins under their belt. So now, just in the last week, they've won five games. They've won more than half of the games that they've already won since that time that uh, we last spoke on the podcast. And Matt Harvey, of course, was a contributor in the game on Friday, but let's see how he performs moving forward before we start getting all out of whack and, you know, jump to conclusions thinking that, oh, geez, this was a terrible trade. We should have kept them considering the way the pitching staff is now for the Mets with their injuries and obviously Jason Vargas and please. I mean, that's been a nightmare in itself, but I think it was the right thing for the Mets to do. This isn't second-guess time. If you want to start second-guessing now, then you know what? Please feel free, but you're not going to blow that smoke over this way because the Mets needed to get rid of him. It seemed like he didn't want to be here anyway. And, hey, if he pitches lights out in Cincinnati, chances are I'm sure that's what the Reds want. 
the Reds are probably looking for Matt Harvey to have a renaissance here. So come mid-July, they could flip him for some players, hopefully some pitchers for their sake because they have no pitching. And then they could benefit from what the Mets could have benefited, but obviously, again, it was all about his attitude. It was all about the way he performed. Who knows? Was he still hurt based on his stats and what he's shown here in the Met uniform? I mean, we'll never know that. I mean, we could speculate that. But, again, if the Reds could certainly benefit from this and in two months flip him for some prospects or some players, then God bless him. But you know what? If you're a Met fan, you got to move on. That's over and done with. You can't cry and wish that he was still here because, let's face it, since the beginning of 2016, he's done zero. He's done nothing. And I'm not going to beat it to death because the last two podcasts that's all we seem to talk about was Matt Harvey. So you know what? In the days and weeks to come, we'll see how this all shakes down. And if he's going to pitch like he did in 2015, I'm not going to say 2013. But if he's anything close to what he was in 2015, then, hey, you throw your hands up in the air and say, of course. It's just typical Met fashion. But uh, we'll certainly keep an eye on that uh, as we go along. As far as the postseasons are concerned in the NBA and NHL, I'll start with the uh, NHL. How about the Washington Capitals? They've certainly been the story here this postseason. They finally got over the hump and beat Pittsburgh in a huge Game 6. As I said last week, there was no way that they wanted to come home staring down the barrel of a Game 7 shotgun and know that their season was going to rest on the laurels of that game considering how much heartache and heartbreak that they've given their fans over Game 7s, especially in their building. But they sealed the deal. Evgeny Kuznetsov with the overtime game winner in Pittsburgh propels them now into this series against Tampa. And let's face it, to think that they're two games away from being in the first time, you know, they've reached the Stanley Cup Finals since 1998, not only is it going to say a lot about the organization, but it's going to say a lot about this group because they have had teams in the past that have won President's Trophies and a lot of people have thought this is going to be their year and we all know they've fallen flat on their face. But here with 4-2 and 6-2 wins in Tampa, coming back home to a raucous crowd down there in the Verizon Center. I think it's still Verizon Center. They may have changed the name of the building by now, but who knows. And knowing that they're going to want to close the series out at home, not have to go back to Tampa, get ready for a Stanley Cup final. Uh, What can you say? Is anything short but remarkable considering what this organization has been through in the Ovechkin era? Now, as good as that may sound, to get a sweep, Put your feet up, rest, whatever it may be. It also could be scary. Not just in the NHL, but even in the other sports. When you sweep early and you get that, you know, you got six, seven days under your belt and then you try to shake off the rust and try to get the adrenaline and the motive. I don't want to say motivation, but you try to get that all back. It's sometimes not easy. And I get it. People could say, well, Jay Reels, they're playing in the Stanley Cup final. How can they not be motivated? How can they not be ready to, you know, go ahead and try to win, you know, first of four games wins a, Stanley Cup championship. I get that, but we've seen it how many times? You know, I hate to say it. Let's bring back the Mets in 2015. Sweep the Cubs. They had a week off. I think they even had eight days off. And the Royals, they played six games. So, right, they had a couple days off as well. But when you sit that long and you could simulate game action to the cows come home. But sometimes to get started, it just doesn't click. And I'm not trying to say that this capital team, that's what's going to happen, but that's something to just keep in the back of your mind if they steamroll through the lightning here in the series, sweep, and then have a whatever period of time of rest. I don't know if it's a week. I don't know when the first day of the Stanley Cup Finals will be. But certainly something to keep in mind, but you don't worry about that now. You deal with that then. 
right now, Capitals two games away from making their first Stanley Cup final since 1998. And as far as the other series is concerned, with the Winnipeg Jets and the Vegas Golden Knights, Jets have a one-game-to-none lead as they have the home ice uh, game two tonight, and it's a big game for Vegas because now this is the first time all postseason that they're facing some adversity. Remember, they swept the first round against L.A. They won pretty easy in a 4-1 series against San Jose, although the series was tied 1-1, but they haven't faced any adversity in this postseason. And that's going to be a theme I'm going to get to in the next segment with the NBA. But right now, Vegas needs to secure that win. Now, would it kill them if they lost this game two tonight? No, because they're going back home, which we all know they've been dominant at home all season. But you would want to try to get that game tonight, get that home ice back, try to go up 2-1, even 3-1 to bring it back to Winnipeg. But they've been a solid team all year. You got to give your hats off to Winnipeg. Uh, I couldn't tell you, other than Dustin Bufflin, who I know that was part of the Chicago Blackhawk Stanley Cup uh, team in 2010, uh, I, I couldn't name five Winnipeg Jets. I mean, let's be serious. So, if you're a Vegas fan right now, you're hoping to get this victory tonight, so you could have some home cooking here for games three and four. If not, not the end of the world. But again, because this team hasn't had any type of adversity, they haven't had any struggles, it's pretty much been a cakewalk, not even just this postseason. Think about it, the whole year. I mean, did anybody expect not only for Vegas to be in the postseason, I understand 100 teams make the NHL playoffs, same with the NBA, but nobody expected them to have this magic carpet ride of a regular season to be carried over into the postseason and then now for it to crash and burn. No, I'm sure that they're looking to get to the cup. They could, can't say they could taste it because they haven't won a game in the series, but knowing that they've had this majestic, magical ride of an inaugural season here in the NHL, now for them to, you know, just fall flat on their faces right here? No. I'm sure there's going to be a lot to be heard from from this Vegas group because they didn't come this far just to kind of go meekly into the night. Still a lot of hockey to be played. Game two tonight. Uh, that's my take on it. And then uh, real quick with the Nashville Predators because I had picked them going to the Cup to play against Tampa. And I said it last week, the last thing Gary Bettman wants to see is a Tampa-Vegas, or worse, a Tampa-Winnipeg Stanley Cup Final. I mean, Tampa-Vegas, still not sexy. I mean, you could hang your hat on Vegas because they are a first-year expansion team. But I'm sure they want to have Washington-Vegas in the worst way in the Cup Final. Anything other than that, I don't even know what those ratings will be like. And I understand a lot of America is not going to wrap their arms around a guy like Alexander Ovechkin, who is, let's face it, the guy is a lock Hall of Famer. He's scored over 600 goals. He's been dominant for many years. I get he flies under the radar because he's not an American or Canadian player. But, I mean, the guy has been fantastic his whole career. The only the only thing that's missing is not only him reaching a Stanley Cup final, but, of course, winning a Stanley Cup final amongst his peers, amongst the guys, uh, Sidney Crosby, Jonathan Tays, you know, players of that ilk. So we'll get to see how that shakes down here in the days and weeks to come. All right, now on to the NBA. Now, the Celtics yesterday took a 1-0 lead over the Cleveland Cavaliers in their best-of-seven Eastern Conference Finals matchup. Remember last year, Cleveland embarrassed them in Boston in those first two games. Remember, those halftime scores were like 80-40. to 40. Just putrid basketball, certainly unwatchable if you're a Celtic fan. But this year, as for one game, not to get carried away, but for one game, looks like a whole different story. 
And one of the reasons why I think, and before going into the series, that I thought the Celtics had a fair shot is not only because they're just younger, but they're also more athletic and have a lot of bodies that they could put up against LeBron James. Now, is anyone going to stop him or you know slow him down to a point where you looked at yesterday's game where Marcus Morris pretty much did what he had to do and LeBron only had 15 points? Certainly not a great game for LeBron James by any stretch. And not that I expect that in games two through wherever this series may end up. But they have the bodies and the length to at least slow him down. To at least say, hey, you want to score all the points or you want to be the guy that's going to come in and you know do more damage as far as the stat sheets is concerned, that's fine. As long as anybody else on the floor does not get anything close to what they got in the Toronto series, the J.R. Smiths, the Kevin Loves of the world, you know, players like that, you know, the old guard, Kyle Corvers, those type of guys are the ones that Cleveland is banking on to provide that help that LeBron James is going to need in order for them to get back to an eighth straight LeBron James team-led NBA final. And with the way Brad Stevens is coached in this postseason, he has certainly shown that his team is not scared of the moment, that without their best two players, which is unbelievable to think, that they've been able to step up to any challenge that's come at them, whether that means having to come back and play a Game 7 in their building against a Milwaukee Buck team who is inexperienced but obviously have the great player, against a young, still inexperienced, but certainly very talented Philadelphia 76er team, and we saw how they disposed of them. And Philly certainly shot themselves in the foot a few times in that series, which pretty much led the Celtics through the door and were able to come out on the victory side, on the victorious side there in that series. But here, they're certainly going to need to, of course, it's all hands on deck, but here they're going to have to do their best to slow down LeBron as much as they can and have the other players on their team beat them. That's all there is to it. And I'm not trying to compare Ben Simmons to LeBron because, I mean, I'd just be stupid, to put it bluntly. But they're going to try to defend LeBron the way they defended Ben Simmons. Because if you look at that previous series, Ben Simmons was not really a factor in a lot of those games. Yeah, he had his moments, but certainly not those moments that he had in the series against Miami. That he was anywhere between 18 and 22 with 10 rebounds and 8 assists. He had glimpses of that against Boston, but certainly did not have anything close to what he did in the Miami series. And pretty much their game plan, I would think, just by watching these games is that, okay, LeBron, you know what? We're going to defend you. We're going to throw bodies at you. you if you're going to end up scoring 30-some-odd points or whatever it is, and you can see pretty much from the, right from the jump, you know, LeBron certainly wasn't the aggressor. I understand he's the type where he kind of like a boxer where he's going to feel the team out and see you know, how they're going to perform before he turns on the switch and pushes the pedal to the metal. But the Celtics, right from the jump, Put the pedal to the metal, had that 25-2 run, pretty much coasted. Had a moment there in the late third when they cut it to 14, which made you think, oh boy, here comes LeBron, here come the Cavs, and this is a dangerous spot. But when they started off the fourth quarter with a 7-0 run, uh, that pretty much iced it. To me, the key for the Celtics is to win that game tomorrow. You want to go up to love. Because like I said earlier about the Vegas Golden Knights, you know, they, this team has not faced any adversity. All right, you want to say, hey, they had a Game 7 at home, but the game was at home. And they had won all the home games against Milwaukee, so it wasn't as if Milwaukee had won a game or two in Boston 
where they had the confidence or had the thought of, hey, you know, we could win the series. We could go in there and steal another game from them if possible. No. Pretty much what happened is that the Celtics, who have been pretty much playing with house money, knowing that Kyrie Irving, Gordon Hayward are out, relying on scary Terry Rozier, Jason Tatum, who's blossoming in front of your eyes as a rookie, which is amazing, and Jalen Brown, who's a second-year player. And we can't forget the contributions of the old grizzled veteran Al Horford. You know, this team hasn't had that moment or hasn't had that, you know, look around the room and be like, oh, geez, what's going to happen? And if they were to lose tomorrow night and go to Cleveland, let's say they're down 2-1 in the series, then we're going to see what the Celtics team is made of. And sometimes, you know, you got to get tested. I hope that's not the case. I know the Celtics aren't going to, you know, win this in five. I mean, if they do, then, I mean, what are you going to say? But it's one of those things that the Celtics, for them to win tomorrow night's game, you would feel a lot more comfortable because if you go to Cleveland, and let's say, for instance, you get blitzed right out of the gate the way Boston did against the Cavs yesterday. And now you're down 2-1, and you're playing a game four in that building, and that building's going to be raucous, and that building's going to be pumped, and that team is an old team. It's a good matchup for Boston in that regard, despite the fact they have a ton of experience on that side. But we've seen how Cleveland has played, not only just throughout the regular season, but even in this postseason. Just look at the Indiana series, where they matched up well against Cleveland. Indiana gave Cleveland a run for their money in that first round. And when you look at what Toronto didn't do, despite the fact that they had a deep bench, they just took the heart out of Toronto for the third straight postseason. So therefore, you kind of just smack them aside and just look at, based on what Indiana did in that first round, to what the Celtics could actually do here in a conference final. And as crazy as it may sound, the Celtics can, not going to say will, but they can make it to an NBA final. Now, as I said before, they haven't had any real pressure on them in this postseason as far as trailing in a series or even trailing on the road, let's say, with the series tied at 1-1 and how they're able to respond. That's going to be the big key for this team moving forward if they do not win tomorrow night against the Cavs in Game 2. As far as the other series out west, Houston, despite Chris Paul and what he did in the previous round against Utah, now they're stepping up to the bigger stage. And this is a stage that he's been waiting his whole career. This is his first time in a conference final. He put up some gaudy numbers against the Utah Jazz in the semifinal. But he's going up against the three-time Western Conference champion and two of the last three NBA champion Golden State Warriors. I believe that this Golden State Warrior team, despite the fact not showing their true dominance throughout the regular season, had some injuries. We all know about Steph Curry. And for them to get over this hump, to get to an NBA final, for Chris Paul to finally make it to the Holy Grail, he's going to have to put up similar numbers. Now the Warriors, as we know, when they play defense and they're on their game, on that end of the floor, they're going to be unstoppable because you know they're going to score points. It's just a matter of what they deploy on defense against the likes of Chris Paul, James Harden, how they play down low against a guy like Clint Capella who's 
that lunch pail type of player who's going to go in there and do all the dirty work, grab rebounds, box out, play physical. If Chris Paul were to make it to an NBA final, he's going to have to be Herculean. He's going to have to put up those numbers in all the games that he plays. No days off. And just because if I see tonight him post a line of 28-9 and 6 or 28-8 and 9 or whatever it is, that doesn't mean he's arrived. I got to see it in crunch time. Because as I've said before on this podcast, got to go back, I think, to the second podcast that I put up. In big spots, he melts. Especially in the playoffs. And if you don't believe me, you want me to run through the laundry list of poor performances that he's had in the postseason? In enormous spots? Do I have to go back to last year against the Utah Jazz in a Game 7, which he had a phenomenal Game 6, to bring that series to a Game 7 at home? His last game was a Clipper. And the man was a no-show? The year before that, or I believe two years before that, against Houston, when they had a game six that they could have won to go to a conference final, in which a game that James Harden was actually benched because he was pathetic, and I'll get to him in a second. Up 3-2, conference semis against Houston. Spit the bit, double-digit lead, third quarter. Couldn't bring his team home. And do I have to go back to his New Orleans days? Not winning a Game 7 against San Antonio in a conference semi? First round, getting blown up by 58 at home against Denver? And people can say, well, Jay Reels, come on, that was 9, 10 years ago. Oh, that's part of his playoff history. And before you say, what about the first round against San Antonio when he made that floater over Tim Duncan to win that series? All right, give him credit for that, but that was the first round. That wasn't a conference semi or a conference final. Obviously, this is the first time he's sniffing the conference finals in his career. So I just need to see it in big spots. And you know what? They let him have a monster game tonight. Sure not going to sell me. Let me see that series tied at two going back to Houston. Let, let's see the performance then. Or down 3-2 in Golden State. Let me see that performance then. And the same goes for James Harden. Because the bas- the back of his basketball playoff card is just about as comparable as Chris Paul's. Do I need to bring up last year, game six at home against San Antonio when the man was invisible? The aforementioned game six in L.A. where he had to have Josh Smith and Corey Brewer, of all people, bail him out. So Harden, hey, listen, again. He could do all of his fancy dribbling and try to shake and bake and drain threes and step back. Hey, I get it. Fine. Game one, hey, you. I wake up tomorrow and Houston wins you know, 117-98 and Harden has 35 and Chris Paul has 28 and hey, I'll say great. Good job. One game. Let me see how the rest of the series unfolds. And I haven't even gotten to the coach, which let's face it. Let me see him in a big spot. And it's interesting when you look at all these teams in any postseason. As I mentioned before about Vegas. You know, will they go down 0-2 back home and not facing any pressure pretty much this whole season, let alone this postseason? 
The Celtics, will they go to Cleveland tied 1-1 or will they be up 2-0 and still have home court intact? Or if it is 1-1 and let's say they lose a game three and now it's a pivotal game four in Cleveland, how are they going to respond? Well, guess what? Golden State wins game one tonight. And Harden and Paul are so-so. Or let's say just average or good, not great. Boy, the pressure is going to be on in Clutch City. Or what they once called Clutch City. Back in the mid-90s with Hakeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler, Kenny Smith, Otis Thorpe, Vernon Maxwell, Robert Ory, etc. You get the gist. It'll be fascinating to see. And in closing, a couple other notes. One, this Saturday is the Preakness, so we'll have Justify trying to see if he, he could become victorious again. So the stage will be set. If that's the case for the Belmont Stakes, which will be right here in our backyard in Long Island in a few weeks for another Triple Crown. Remember a couple of years ago we had American Pharaoh finally break that long. I believe it was 38 years, whatever it was, between horses winning a Triple Crown. So we'll see what happens down in Pimlico, Maryland on uh, what, what about 620 this coming Saturday. Hopefully the track isn't as sloppy as it was for the Kentucky Derby. But uh, we'll have to wait and see how that uh, shakes down because, as we know, Springs here in the Northeast, you know, one day it's 85 degrees and it's beautiful and it's nice and eh, maybe, you know, 75 and the next day it's 50 and rain. You know, it was 50 and blustery on Saturday here in New York, so Maryland is pretty much right down the street. Well, not really, but you know what I mean. We're in the Northeast. And even though it may be a few degrees, temp- you know, a few degrees warmer as far as temperature is concerned, but another sloppy track. And to have that horse to go through another mile and a quarter to victory is certainly going to be a challenge for him. So we'll keep our eye on that. And then the big news of the day, for all you gamblers out there, see, this wouldn't apply to me because I could care less. You know the old saying, scared money never wins? No, there's no way. As you all know, I'll never own a fantasy team, rotisserie baseball, basketball, you name it. Uh Uh-uh. I won't even put $10 for an NCAA tournament office pool. And funny enough, quick story. The Super Bowl Giants-Patriots first one, Super Bowl 42. I actually played two boxes. I had Giants 7, Patriots 3. That year, if you remember, the halftime score was 7-3, and at the end of the third quarter it was 7-3. I won 500 bucks. To me, it can't even get any better than that. Anything short of playing the lottery, where right now I think it's what two hundred and fifty-seven million, or no, two hundred eighty million. The Powerball this coming Wednesday. Yeah, I hit the mother load with that Super Bowl. So to me, whatever it is I do, as far as any type of gambling is concerned, uh, uh-uh. uh, I'd rather put two dollars on a lottery ticket, cross my fingers, and hope for the best. As far as me playing any fantasy sports, uh, uh-uh. uh, gambling on football, basketball, whatever, nope, sorry. But today, the Supreme Court, for all you gamblers out there, and I know this could be a shutter, there'll be a lot of shutters in households throughout the uh, the region here in New York and New Jersey, especially when it comes to wives or girlfriends, for that matter. But uh, the Supreme Court has nixed a bill to prohibit gambling 
in certain states, as you all know, Nevada is the only state where you could gamble or put a wager on anything. But it just so happened that in certain states, as I'm pulling up the article as I speak, the Supreme Court ruling opened the door for states outside of Nevada to legalize widespread sports gambling, an action that is expected to lead to billions of dollars moving from illegal sports book, books excuse me, to new or expanded legal operations. And this came up last June, especially in the state of New Jersey. I know Governor Christie was a big proponent for it and hoping that it was going to go through, etc. But um, now it's saying that more than 20 states have taken up versions of bills aimed at taking advantage of favorable ruling. Four states, New York, um, excuse me, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Mississippi, and West Virginia have passed bills that could see them beginning taking bets shortly. Well, you're either going to have your husbands or boyfriends going over the bridge to place wagers or... If it happens here in New York, whether it's sooner or later, hold on to your bank accounts. Make sure that you have a separate account because if you have a significant other who loves to put some money, and not just on the horses, I might add, but anything from point spreads in the NFL, including NBA for that matter, baseball, any type of wager, I tell you. I don't want to say it's going to get scary because I don't know a lot of gamblers, but I'm sure it's going to open the eye of a lot of people to say who love sports and would think that, you know what? I think I'm going to wager on the Golden State-Houston game tonight. I'll put $100 taking Golden State minus whatever the spread is. I couldn't even tell you. So, that is enormous news for the sports gambler out there. As that just came up the pike, I could care less people. I'm just reporting it only because that is news. And for those who in the coming weeks, whenever this uh, starts to take shape, especially out in New Jersey, and if it does happen to bleed into New York, this is this is huge. It's enormous. I mean, who would have ever thought that you could probably go into not necessarily a stadium, because I'm sure that'd be forbidden, but maybe there's a Center somewhere downtown, uh, like a off-track betting. If you remember back in the day, OTB, or who knows, certain sports bars. You know the uh, ESPN zones of the world, if I may. That you could just go in there and say, "Yeah, I want to bet on the Cavs, or bet on the Rockets, bet on the Vegas Golden Knights." Yankees are playing Washington. I'm betting on the Yankees tonight. I mean, this could actually happen. And if this shakes down the way it does as it's the ruling came down today, I can't even imagine what that's going to be like for those people out there who just love to wager their money on these particular games or props or whatever it may be. So, interesting news coming out of Washington today in reference to that. So, hold on to your purse strings, people. Don't be quick to make that wager just yet, but I'm sure it's going to be coming to a booth or who knows, a parlor, whatever it may be here in the tri-state area sooner than later. All right, people. So if you like what you've heard today or have listened to any of my other podcasts uh, prior to this one, want to leave a review, post a rating, even subscribe, which would be imperative, which would be important. And I would certainly, with my hands crossed, as I genuflect from afar to say please do so because obviously that will generate a wider audience if you do subscribe to this podcast 
You can go on my website, of course, and leave a comment on my email, which is thejreelspodcast at gmail.com. But more importantly, uh, subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Uh, Not only that, like I said, please leave a review. Uh, Also, uh, recommend this to any of your buddies, friends, people who are into sports, people who you know that would certainly uh, like to give this a listen, whether on their commute to work, whether in the gym, wherever it may be, people, because word of mouth is just as important as social media and me posting this up on my website and things of that nature. It's very simple. Literally takes seconds. All you have to do is just go to your podcasts app on your iPhone, or if not, go to your settings, try to download the particular app for that uh, place that you listen to your podcast, whether it's Stitcher, Spreaker. I'm also becoming on SoundCloud, but that's in the days and weeks to come. Uh, check those Google Play as well. Uh, just download the app, type in the J Reels podcast. You'll see subscribe, hit that. You'll be the first to get any notices in reference to when the podcast will pop up on your phone. You could easily download it. And like I said, what's even more important besides subscribing is leave a rating, post a review, even if it's a few words. J Reels is the man. I love his interviews. Interesting insight, whatever it may be. I encourage you, please, people, because like I said, and I'll say it again. Anytime that I get those reviews, it'll increase visibility throughout the sports podcast field and in turn will generate a much wider audience where it could reach out to a bunch of different people and they'll say, hey, this J Reels podcast is getting a lot of likes here. It's getting a lot of subscriptions. I want to find out what's going on. With that, it'll attract more guests to the program, more popular guests, even bigger and better guests than uh, what we've had so far to date. So please just remember, go to your phone, podcast, type in the J Reels podcast, Hit subscribe, and you'll be first in line to get the podcast once it's up on my website. It'll be transferred right over to the podcast, and you'll be able to play it right through your phone or even in your home. You want to sit and do some work or kick back while you're uh, having a meal or if you're tired of watching TV and you want to listen to me babble about sports or listen to my interviews, please feel free to do so. I'll be forever indebted and greatly uh, appreciated and thankful for you taking the time out to do so. And with that said, I do thank you once again for taking the time out to download this podcast, to give it a listen. Like I said, please feel free to share this with everybody and anybody that'd be interested who watches sports, follows sports, reads, writes, whatever it may be, even plays. doesn't matter as long as they get a chance to listen to what I have to say because Lord knows without you guys listening, chiming in, tuning in, there certainly wouldn't be no J Reels podcast. From the South Bronx, the South Beast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J. Rules Podcast, on the flip, baby.